Hello everyone, welcome to Knox Bedtime Stories, the bedtime story podcast for grown-ups. I'm your friend Joey, here with another episode to help you relax, feel safe, and fall asleep. It's 2am here, I hope you're all staying safe, staying away from social media and the news, and any other triggers. My sleep cycle is all messed up from my new antipsychotic, which is why I've been sleeping during the day and recording the podcast overnight. So, if you're up and it's late, I'm right here with you, and I'm going to help you get a good night's sleep. On tonight's episode, I'll read a short good news story about a new world record for the longest basketball game ever played to bring mental health awareness. And I have the most relaxing story I think I've ever done called Among Autumn Leaves. It takes us on a walk through a beautiful forest and it's very descriptive and calming. It's easily one of the most relaxing stories I've found. I now have about a dozen stories that are relaxing like this thanks to copyrights expiring just last month, and I'll add a few to Patreon as soon as we're done, Glinda of Oz. If you're new to the podcast, welcome to the Knox family. I hope I'm able to bring you calm and comfort and a good night's sleep for a long time to come. From here on out, nothing exists except you, me, this beautiful fireplace, and the bed couch or floor you're laying on. I would like to welcome our newest Patreon patron, Carrie Davis, to our Little Knox Bedtime family here. Thank you for joining. And thank you to the rest of our patrons for helping keep the podcast going. We need more Patreon patrons. Ask yourself this question. What is a good night's sleep worth to you? Does the podcast help you relax, feel safe, and fall asleep once a month, once a week, five days a week? If it does, please consider becoming a patron for as little as $2 a month. That's basically the price of a cheap cup of coffee a month. There are various rewards for you, including bonus content. I think we have over 20 stories on there right now. These episodes can take me in excess of 20 hours to put together, and I have my big podcast bills coming up on September 25th, so patrons are needed now more than ever. I do a lot to make sure these are as comforting as possible for all of you, and this is my only income. So if you would like to become a patron, please go to KnoxBedtimeStories.com and click the join patreon button or patreon.com forward slash Knox bedtime stories I really don't want to have to move the podcast to a free podcast host that would mean downtime and a ton of work for me I won't be able to tell what episodes you enjoyed and might have to deal with commercials As it stands, it's going to cost a little over three months of Patreon earnings to pay for the podcast host, website, and renewing my domain name another year. So, your help is greatly appreciated. 
Before we get to tonight's story, I have a good news story about the longest basketball game ever played, and it was played to raise awareness of mental health issues. Obviously, mental health awareness is near and dear to those that listen to this show. A basketball game at a New York gym broke a Guinness World Record when the gameplay time reached the marker of 120 hours in two minutes. Nick Revelis of the Revelis Family Foundation organized a group of players from New York and Canada to play the world's longest basketball game at Narden Academy in Buffalo. The event was a tribute to Devin Waring, a close friend who died by suicide in 2017, Revelis said. The record attempt sought to raise awareness of mental health issues. Revelis said the record attempt stemmed from a series of neighborhood basketball games that he has been organizing in recent years. It was kind of a fun way for our neighbors to get together in the driveway, he told Guinness. And then, over the years, it's just kind of become this massive fundraiser. Not just to raise money for mental health, but also awareness. The game lasted long enough to claim the record for longest marathon playing basketball game. It's really great to read stories like this when... I started struggling with bipolar 1 disorder in 2008. There were people who would tell me to get over it. As if it was no big deal or there was no such thing, so it's great to see awareness come such a long way in 12 years. Okay, now let's get into bed. Say to yourself, my bedroom is a place of peace and relaxation. When I enter this room and crawl into bed at night, today's thoughts naturally begin to soften. My burden lightens and sleep is coming. Let's get to tonight's story, Among Autumn Leaves. Set to sleep-inducing music and this beautiful fireplace. If you're not already laying down, please do so in whatever way is comfortable. And let's begin. Among the autumn leaves, the deep woods catch all the rich colors of the autumn sunsets in their foliage. The dull reds and the vivid ones, the maroons and the scarlets, the golden yellows and the wondrously soft and mellow shades of tan and brown, they hold till from a hilltop you see in the forest a fire. Flames flutter, embers glow and fall, and brown ashes and cinders remain. Yet, if you walk far below the fire, in the forest aisles that are beginning to crisp underfoot, with the fallen embers of this conflagration, you are conscious of but one color sensation. A subtle glow pervades all things. An atmosphere that is yellow from which the sap is run, a very ghost of color. The domes of the hickories that grow in the open pasture are a rich brown, a most lovable shade. Those hickory saplings that are rooted in the shade and wait so patiently for fate to carry off the big trees, 
that they may take their places. Take an autumnal tint of the ghost of yellow also, and all the leaves of the wood ferns are pale with it. A paleness that becomes with the more delicate an almost transparent whiteness. We may ingeniously say that the reason these leaves are so anemic is that they grew in the shade and had not in their veins the good green blood of those that flourished in the open and absorbed from the sun and the wind of summer the burn and tan that were to show in autumn. Yet how can we be sure of this when those leaves which grow side by side on the same tree vary so in their autumnal tints. Here, upon a maple, I find leaves that are still green, while others just beside them are scarlet. From the hilltop, those maples which show the furious flames are the ones that, on close inspection, show leaves where the green and the red mingle, either in the same leaf or contiguous leaves. Perhaps the green, complementary color of the red takes the part of shadow background and throws up the more vivid color in greater prominence. The swamp maples are unique in their way of taking on autumnal tints anyway. In common with all trees that stand with their feet in the water, they lose the rich green of full summer growth long before the frosts touch them, and long before similar trees standing on upland slopes have any idea that autumn is approaching. Occasionally, a maple branch growing on some swamp tree, bowered in a little cove of woodland greenery, will flame up in early July, as if some ignis fatis wandering in by ghostly moonlight from a nearby ditch had touched the bough with the strange fire that crimsoned but did not consume. There is nothing the matter with the tree. It is well nourished and a vigorous growth, yet it flares this early signal that winter, with her train, is sooner or later to whistle down the tracks of the great northern road. Such a maple is like an overzealous flagman who stands on the crossing and waves his signal before the train is even started from the distant city. I do not recall seeing this trait exhibited by other trees. Again, individual trees of many species will show ruddy tints in the swamp, sometimes in early September, before other trees of the same species standing nearby have even a suspicion of it. Yet this rule holds good. The swamp trees color first and lose their leaves first, the maples first of all. Sometimes by October, first precocious specimens are bald. Their gray poles conspicuous spots among the surrounding greenery. With their vivid colors, their premature baldness, their usually smaller size, 
and a generally devil-may-care air which, perhaps, is only seeming because of these facts. The swamp maples always appear to me like swashbucklers, roistering young blades in whom riots the wine of life whose red faces early in the morning of the autumn, and whose premature baldness both hint of dissipation. Their roots are deep in the richest of mold, dissolved in the water of copious springs. The most bounteous of banquets, and the warmest of wine, is continually at their lips. It is no wonder if their youth is tempted to excesses. Most of the lady birches stand aloof on the upland slopes. I notice not far enough away to forbid the handsome young maples from climbing out of their mire of dissipation to nibble the dry husks of gravel, bank breakfast food, and drink dew among them if they have the courage. But not all thus withdraw in whispering groups. Down into the swamp, others have stepped and stand erect and dainty among the rubicund roisterers. Social workers, these without doubt, missionaries of the birch, CTU, who thus give their lives nobly to teaching by example. Among the same temptations they stand, their shimmering green skirts drawn slimly about them, their slight forms erect, the very visible essence of virtue. The fervor of autumn touches them only with a pale yellow aureola, which marks at once their freedom from taint of temptation and their saintliness. There is not much to prove it in a bird's eye view of the swamp this October, yet I can but feel that these pure lives radiate an influence among the sensuous swamp maples. Here and there you will find one of these, the rich green of whose summer leaves turns to yellow hue at this time of year though it is a creature comfort yellow compared with the soft ether reality of the birches. Such, I believe, are on the road to conversion. The spirituality of their neighbors has touched them and they are beginning to be conscious of the beauty of temperate living and strive toward it. Perhaps some autumn we shall note the presence of a great revival, and the October swamp will be all one pale misty nimbus of spirituality, a soft yellow radiance of saints who have spurned riotous living and glow with ethereal fires of reunification. Then will the birch, CTU, hold a praise service on higher ground, another maple which from its autumn coloration as well as other characteristics is a very near relative of the swamp maples is the white maple, sometimes called the silver-leaved maple. 
This too turns a vivid red in early October, though it holds its leaves a little longer than the red maples of the swamp. On the other hand, the imported Norway maples, more shapely and stately trees in their full growth than our own, line our streets and parks with noble round heads that are still green except for a slight frosting of bronzy yellow on top, giving the tree a richness of dignified maturity that is beautiful to look upon. There is nothing of the missionary about these. They simply stand serene, placid reminders of the value of noble example. Like these trees in the formation of the symmetrical, rounded heads are the chestnuts, which are still green when the other deciduous trees of the wood have been caught in the conflagration of autumn coloring. Now, the first week in October being passed, they show a certain yellowness of foliage, which is enhanced by the yellow-brown of the ripe burrs which throng the tips of their upper branches. Twice during the year does the rich green of the chestnut leafage bloom with a richer tinting. First, in June, when the long staminate blossoms seem to pour in cascades from their billowed tops, and again at this time of year, when the ripened nuts push open the green burrs of September, and the failing sap leaves them at first a yellow-green and later a golden-tan-brown. Walking beneath the trees today, you are likely to get a rap on the head from a solid seal brown chestnut, or even find your neck full of prickers where the fretful porcupine of a descending burr has jabbed you. Already the ash trees, whose foliage has passed with much rapidity through olive green and olive yellow to tan brown, which still holds a little of the olive tint, stand bare and gray against the sky like the red maples, sure prophets of winter. The ash is never profuse of leaves. It drops them first of all in the autumn and is among the latest to put them forth in the spring. Even in the height of summer, you cannot say that its foliage is dense. And when the slender brown leaves lie upon the ground, they do not make a thick carpet. They merely crisp underfoot instead of rustling. Under a Norway maple, the ground will later be half-leg deep in dense curled leaves that rustle and swish under your stride. The plow through them and they leap up and dance away from your progress, a splashing undulating brown tide. Under oaks much later, you find a similar sea, though its flood does not rise so high, and there is a crisper rustle that is yet a large-hearted and generous sound. Under willows, there is a silky crispness that is quite different from either. 
so blindfolded and led from one part of the forest to another. You might tell every tree under which you passed by the sound of its dead leaves underfoot. So too, knowing your tree, you might tell with accuracy the time of the year, the definite week of autumn in which your pilgrimage was taking place. Under the oaks today, though but a few leaves are yet on the ground, you would feel the round acorns underfoot, and you would know that these were not chestnuts because of the lack of burrs. So too, you might know that you were under the white oak instead of the black, by the different shape of the acorn. If your foot sense were not sufficiently subtle to note this difference, though if you were much addicted to life in the open woodland, it would be. You still might, blindfolded, know the white oak from the black by the sweetness of its acorns. I sometimes think they are more pleasing to the palate than the chestnuts, though they have a slight astringency. Yet their meat is sweeter, aside from the slight bitterness, has more of flavor, as you will see if you will test first one and then the other. I think you will agree with me that the chestnut flavor is pale and insipid in comparison. The black oak acorn is a different fruit. Like the tree, it seems to absorb all the bitterness of the wood. The white oak always seems to me to glow with the generous hospitality of the sunshine. The black oak to be morose and vindictive, a tree of dull days and shadows. I have little excuse for this feeling unless it is because of their fruits. The two trees grow side by side in the woodland, the black, if anything, the more vigorous in growth, yet the scaly whiteness of the bark of the one always seems hospitable, the rugose blackness of that of the other unfriendly. So with the fruit, the rich flavor of the white oak acorns is inviting. The moracious bitterness of the others is repellent. Out of the fact of this palatableness, on the part of the one of the repulsiveness, on the part of the other, has grown a singular condition in the southern states, where the trees as here once grew in equal profusion side by side in the forests. There it is, the custom, and has been since the day of the first settlement, to turn swine loose in the forests, where, in the autumn, they fatten on mast, which is an old English name still in use there, but little known in New England. It means forest nuts of any kind, but especially acorns. These southern forest-feeding swine have so loved the white oak mast that they have in a large measure kept the trees from reproducing by eating all the seeds. The black oak mast, on the contrary, 
They are rejected as any wise animal would, leaving the seeds to be scattered about in profusion and reproduce more black oaks. Hence a scarcity of white oaks in the southern forests where they would be welcome. The oaks are more tenacious of their leaves than any other deciduous tree, though they are fairly early in showing autumn tints. Long after the reds of other trees of the wood are buried in brown drifts that cover the roots, from the two fierce frosts of winter, the rich deep crimsons and red browns of the oak remain. Indeed, the leaves of some species hold on all winter and let go their grip only reluctantly when pushed off by swelling buds of the next spring's growth. Their rustle as they cling to the twigs in December makes the wood vocal as the winter winds sift the snow softly down among them. Oftentimes, before you see the first fine far apart flakes of the coming storm, you may hear them pat here and there on a resonant oak leaf, and their present makes the winter outlook more perfectly and comfortably bleak as the fine flakes whirl through them. Snow amongst perfectly bare twigs fails of its full effect. You need the shiver of its sifting among the dry persistent leaves of the oaks to realize all the beauty of its bleakness. Now, however, the rich wine reds, the vivid crimsons, and the deep maroons that deepen on the one leaf into bluish purples and on the other into violet browns mingled as they are yet with the vigorous chlorophyll green of the untinted leaf. These all are beginning to make up the more permanent glory of the full tide of autumn color. Come with me, if you will, at sunset to the scrubby hill where three years ago, the woodchopper swept through like locusts devouring every green thing they lay in their path. They left behind them only gray stumps, dead limbs, and devastation. Yet hardly were their backs turned before the surgent vitality of spring swept upward from the earth, sheltered roots, and burgoned from the gray stumps in adventitious shoots that flushed purple with the excess of young blood in them. Four feet they grew these new shoots that year, and as much more the next, and now another forest of young oaks, black, white, red, scarlet, and scrub romps where the elder forest stood in majesty. Its leaves are fewer in number, but of enormous size and full of the riot of young life, with all the vigor of the parent tree sent up from the great deep roots. Now, their tide of sap is flowing back 
and the deep bronze green is turning to the richest crimson and lake. Through these, the golden radiance of the sun is drowned in a sea of bacchanal glory that makes the eye drunk and bewildered with its wine of crimson fires. To look toward it directly is to face a furnace of vivid liquid flames that makes the whole world green with flying blots of complementary color as you look away. Looking north or south to relieve the eye, you find that the rich color is still caught cunningly in the curves and facets of the leaves that glow like fire rubies set in mosaics of chrysoprase, almondite, garnet, and carnelian. Turn again so that your back is to the sun and your eye rests among soft depths of umber lighted by rich reds that do not dazzle and flanked by tans and barrel. It is a world of glow and warmth and color that will long outlast the scarlets and yellows of the other deciduous trees. And even in the dead of winter, the sunset fires will glow and flare in remembrance of these colors in the still clinging leaves. Thank you all for listening. And if you enjoyed Knox Bedtime Stories, please become a Patreon patron. For as little as $2 a month, you can keep Knox Bedtime Stories, helping tens of thousands of people around the world get a good night's sleep, as well as get various rewards such as tears, extra episodes, books, your name on our webpage, and more to come. You can sign up at KnoxBedtimeStories.com and click on the Patreon link or Patreon.com forward slash KnoxBedtimeStories. Become a part of a great community. I wish you all a good night's sleep and a happy peaceful life. May the best of your days be the worst of your tomorrows. Good night.